We hold in tension this morning um, the holiness of this week on the church calendar, but the heaviness of this week in our in our city. Uh, Many of our families have been affected by the the tragedy. Um, Sanders family has kids at Covenant. Um, uh, I know the Geshkis are are good friends with the Scruggs. Um, There's many many connections, and those aren't all of them. And I want you to know as we celebrate. and, and say Hosanna this morning, we feel the tension of that. And so as, as you, um, many of you know, know the Geskis, know the Sanders, um, and others that have been affected, um, we just encourage you as a pastoral staff to come around them as the body and, and show your, your love and your support. We do have a meal train up for the Sanders and would encourage you to to sign up for that. Uh, if you don't know how, um, just email me, email Molly, and we'll, we'll point you to the link. Uh, Dear Diary, it's Friday morning, and this is my absolute favorite time each year. I just can't wait for Uncle Joe and Aunt Sarah to arrive for the holidays since it's been a year since I've gotten to play with Caleb, Abigail, and Naomi. They're my favorite cousins. But it takes three whole days to get here from Tiberias. You know, I wonder if their, hurt feet by, their feet hurt by now. I really, really hope that they get here before sunset tonight, because if they don't, then that means they won't get here until Sunday, like last year with that stubborn donkey incident. It took them a whole extra day to barter for a new donkey down in Jericho. Well, when they get here, the first thing I'm going to tell them is that I've decided to become a scribe. When I grow up, I've been practicing all year long. In other news, Mama and I went to the market today, and the city is already getting crowded. And everybody is talking about 10 guys who came running into town last night. Apparently, they're telling everybody that'll listen that they've um, all had leprosy, but that they don't have to be in quarantine anymore because some rabbi they met a couple days ago healed them, and the priest declared them clean this morning. But Abba tells me not to believe everything I hear. People make stuff up sometimes just to get attention. Like that Lazarus guy over in Bethany who says that a rabbi named Jesus raised him from the dead last month. I mean, that can't happen. Dear diary, it's Saturday night now. Uncle Joe's donkey cooperated this year, and everybody got here just before sunset yesterday. So I have so, so much to tell you about their journey. It's so exciting that I wanted to write about it first thing this morning, but Abba said that I have to wait until after sunset because the rabbi says that writing counts as work. If Abba caught me writing on the Sabbath, I would have been in big trouble. Of course, now that I think about it, he'd have to wait until after sunset to do anything about it because doing something about it, but he worked too. So maybe I could have gotten away with it. Oh, well, maybe I'll try that next Saturday while everybody's still here for the feast. Anyway, you should have seen the look on their faces when they arrived. They were so excited that Aunt Sarah kept interrupting Uncle Joe and finishing his stories. He's kind of a slow storyteller, and Aunt Sarah's quicker at talking. They told us they were traveling with a big group from Galilee because, as Uncle Joe always says, there's safety in numbers, and you never know what kind of shady characters you might run into along the way, like a Samaritan. Sure enough, 
On the first day of their journey, as they were traveling along the border of Samaria, they came across 10 shady-looking guys that were hanging out near the edge of a small village. Caleb and Naomi had been running ahead of the caravan, and they were the first to see the men. Caleb could tell by the way they dressed that they were poor and that one of them was a Samaritan. All of a sudden, the Samaritan yelled, Unclean! Unclean! Which totally freaked Caleb and Naomi out, so they hightailed it back to the group. Caleb says that Naomi hid behind Uncle Joe's cloak, but Naomi denies it. It turns out that all ten of these guys had leprosy and were just yelling at them to keep their distance so they wouldn't get sick too. But when you're a kid and someone yells at you, it's always scary, even if they're trying not to be mean. Anyway, when the caravan was passing by at a safe distance, one of the lepers said, hey, look, there's Jesus. And then all 10 of them started shouting, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And a rabbi named Jesus broke away from the caravan and walked right up to them. I mean, who does something crazy like that? He could have gotten sick. And Aunt Sarah said that Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priests. Uncle Joe said he's never seen a group of guys pack up so quickly and start running towards Jerusalem. But that's not the amazing part. Just a couple hours later, a little further down the road towards Jericho, Caleb was running ahead again, but with Abigail this time because Naomi was scared that someone else might yell at them. All of a sudden, Caleb and Abigail looked up and saw the Samaritan man running back towards them on the road. They decided it would be best to get off the road and hide behind some palm trees, so they did. The Samaritan ran right past where they were hiding and back towards the caravan. But as he passed, Caleb noticed that his skin looked totally different. When they first saw him, it looked all patchy and sick. But now it looked totally clear and healthy and normal. And Abigail interrupted Caleb and said, Hey, don't forget to tell them that he was smiling and crying all at the same time as he ran past us. So on his way to Jerusalem, this man had been totally healed of his leprosy and had turned back around to thank Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So those 10 guys who Mama and I heard about at the market yesterday must have been telling the truth after all. I know I can trust what my relatives tell me. They would never make something up like that just to get attention. I wonder if this is the same Jesus that everybody was talking about last month. I wonder if he really did raised Lazarus from the dead. Anyway, that's not all. Yesterday morning, Uncle Joe said that they were, as they were leaving Jericho, a blind man started yelling at their caravan. I've seen that same blind man with my own eyes. He was there begging for money beside the road in Jericho last summer when Grandma and Grandpa took me and my little sister to visit the Dead Sea. Uncle Joe said, although this blind man couldn't see Jesus, someone must have told him that Jesus was in their group of travelers because this man started shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. Loud enough for everyone to hear. Some of the people traveling in the caravan told the guy to pipe down, but this only made him shout louder. Uncle Joe was talking too slowly again. So Sarah, Aunt Sarah interrupted him and finished the story. Jesus walked over to this blind man, started talking with him and told him, Your faith has made you well. And immediately this guy got up, looked around, and could actually see Jesus healed a blind man. Isn't that incredible? Abba, Mama, my sister, and I could hardly believe what we were hearing. Abba had a shocked look on his face and asked Uncle Joe, do you think this Jesus could be the one? The one that the prophets tell us about? The Messiah? Uncle Joe said, well, 
We've seen false messiahs before, but I've never seen one heal lepers and restore sight to the blind with my own eyes. And he kept calling himself the son of man. Like what we read about in Daniel's prophecy, this could be the one that finally saves us from Roman occupation. Mama is quick to ask, where in Jerusalem is this Jesus staying? Did you see? Do you think we could go see him? But Aunt Sarah said they didn't come all the way to Jerusalem with the caravan. He, he and his disciples had, had split off and stopped in Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives right before sunset on, on Friday. Mama looked a little disappointed but continued her thought. Well, if Jesus is the prophesied one, he would never break the law and travel more than a half a mile on the Sabbath. Bethany's two miles away, you know, so he must be coming to the city on Sunday morning. Cousin Abigail asked, do you think we could go out on Sunday morning to meet him and welcome him into the city? Abba and Uncle Joe looked at each other and said, well, sure, why not? We could have a front row seat to history in the making. So here's the plan. Tomorrow morning, my whole family is going to go wait out alongside of the road just east of the city for this man named Jesus to come into town. I've even heard a bunch of our neighbors talking about it. Maybe I should tell Abba to wake us up early because there could be a crowd. I would be sure to get a good spot to see Jesus. I better go to bed now. I'll write more tomorrow. Dear diary, it's Sunday afternoon now. Everybody else is taking a nap because we got up so early, but I just couldn't wait to write about this morning. I'm super glad that we got up early because everybody and their Uncle Joe showed up to welcome Jesus into town. We got a good spot, though. It was down in the Kidron Valley alongside the road under the shade of that grove of palm trees. Abba asked me and Caleb to climb up a couple of the trees to bring down a few branches to spread along the road. Uncle Joe said something about palm branches being a symbol of freedom. Caleb is a faster climber than I am, but I, am a better, I was better at cutting the branches loose. So we finished at about the same time. Our little sisters wanted to help, so we let them spread the branches along the road. A bunch of other people saw what we were doing and started doing the same thing. Uncle Joe even took off his cloak and spread it out on the road alongside our palm branches. So Abba did the same. We were all set to give Jesus a welcome fit for a king. And boy, did we ever. We heard the crowd cheering before we could see him. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As Jesus got near, we could see that he was riding on a young donkey. Kings usually ride on horses. But when Abba saw the young donkey, he looked at Uncle Joe, and Uncle Joe looked at him, and both of their eyes got as wide as ripe olives. Just like the prophet Zechariah said, yelled Uncle Joe over the cheers of the crowd. I don't think I'll ever forget today. I've never seen anything like it before. Abba said that if this Jesus is who we think he is, we could be saved from Roman occupation by midweek. This Passover could be the most special feast we've had in generations and for generations to come. What a time to be alive. Dear diary, it's Thursday afternoon now. I'm sorry I haven't written all week. I guess I've just been too disappointed to write. This Jesus guy, he might be good at miracles, but he stinks at revolutions. The whole city was excited on Sunday, but it all started to fall apart Monday. Abba and Uncle Joe were part of a crowd that heard Jesus say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. 
Now, why would the real Messiah want us to pay Roman taxes when he should be the one leading a revolution against them? I just don't get it. Hearing him say that that made my Uncle Joe and Abba really, really mad. Cable wants to go climb trees now, so I'll write more later. Dear Diary, it's Friday morning. One of our neighbors said that he heard some Roman soldiers saying that Jesus had been arrested last night. And when Mama was in the marketplace this morning buying food for the Sabbath tomorrow, some other people were saying that Jesus told the Roman governor that his kingdom was not of this world. Uncle Joe thinks that at this rate, Jesus will probably be hanging on a Roman cross by midday. What a letdown. Oh, well. At least we got to go sacrifice our spotless lamb at the temple and eat the Passover meal together this week and tell all the old stories about how God rescued our people out of slavery in Egypt. I love those stories. Boy, I just wish God would do something like that again. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here with us to celebrate Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the passage that Shannon read for us earlier, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is Matthew's account of what happened on that spring Sunday morning in AD 33, just as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. Jesus had spent the Sabbath in Bethany with his friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead about six weeks earlier. And now it's time for him and his disciples to make their entrance into Jerusalem for the pilgrim feast of Passover. Verse 1. Let's read this together again. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say to them, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Apparently, the last time Jesus was in the vicinity in Jerusalem or Bethany, he had made arrangements for a donkey rental of sorts, probably on that same trip where he raised Lazarus from the dead, and made arrangements for it to happen on this particular morning. And this is a textual clue to us that Jesus already had everything about this week planned out. He knew what was going down. He knew what was going to happen when he and his disciples came into Jerusalem. He's setting things up. He had done two miracles along the way, healing the lepers, having them run ahead of him to Jerusalem, healing the blind man in Jericho as they're ascending to Jerusalem. He already knows that he's going to die by week's end. And setting up this donkey rental isn't just for convenience sake. No, he's intentionally presenting himself as king to his people. Now, you might be thinking here, now, wait a minute, Jesus. Kings don't ride on adolescent donkeys. Donkeys are service animals. They're used as pack animals for grunt work, for bearing burdens. And in first century Jerusalem, they were used to carry human waste and refuse out of the city. This is not a noble beast. Kings don't ride on donkeys, let alone prepubescent ones. No, what does any self-respecting king ride? A fierce, majestic, and mighty war horse, a stallion with rippling muscles and a flowing mane. That's what kings are supposed to ride, right? 
They ride in with a show of power. They crush their enemies underfoot. They pierce them through with their swords. They wear crowns of jewels on their heads. They gallop into town and sit on a throne. That's what kings do on horses. What is Jesus doing on a donkey? Well, Matthew points out to us that Jesus does this intentionally to fulfill a prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. Let's look at verse 4 again. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then the next verse in Zechariah, which Matthew... um, which Matthew doesn't include, says this, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So by riding this donkey, Jesus is signaling here that he, not only is he the rightful king over Israel, he is king over what? The whole earth, all nations. But he also rode a donkey not only to fulfill prophecy, but also to shatter some expectations. He's a different kind of king than what everybody thinks he is. This king does not ride in with a show of power, but with a demonstration of humility. This king will not crush his enemies, but will be crushed by his enemies. This king does not come to pierce, but to be pierced. This king won't wear a crown of jewels, but rather a crown of thorns. This king won't sit on a throne yet but he will hang on a cross. Jesus rides a service animal because he is a servant king. If you flip back one chapter in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, we read Jesus saying, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He will do the grunt work. He will bear our burdens. He will haul away our refuse. He will carry in himself the sin of the world. He will bear death away forever. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, why palm branches? We know from other um, gospel accounts that these were specifically palm branches. We need to recognize that this is a powerful cultural symbol in first century Judea. It's a symbol of Jewish nationalism. If you know a little bit about the history, you know that the nation of Israel had been subjected by, by foreign powers for the past 500 plus years except for a small little 80-year window where the Maccabees led a revolt and they gained their independence as a nation for just that short little 80-year period. And in that period, they printed coins with palm branches on them as a symbol of freedom and national pride, a symbol of Israel and their independence. And so the palm branches waving and spread out before Jesus had had great significance to the crowds. They're welcoming their king that's going to bring them freedom from their oppressors, or so they think. The crowds recognize the significance of the moment. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
The crowds are Jesus as, recognizing Jesus as their king here. He's riding the colt of a donkey, and they've picked up on the prophetic fulfillment of Zechariah. And so they call him what? Son of David. He's being recognized as the rightful heir to the throne. Now, what isn't quoted in Matthew is the fact that the Zechariah prophecy also says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having what? Salvation. Salvation. And that's why the crowds are also shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. It means, God come or Lord save us. Hosanna, Lord save us. Righteous and having salvation. Hosanna. Save us now. What are the majority of these people expecting Jesus to save them from? They anticipate that he's going to overthrow the Roman oppressors, set up an earthly kingdom, rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem, restore peace and prosperity to the people, and bring political freedom once more to the nation of Israel. Verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And that's the question of the hour. Who is this? And it's the question that we must still ask ourselves today. Who was that? Who is this? Because if we get the answer to that question wrong, we get eternity wrong. The crowds that celebrated Jesus on that original Palm Sunday largely got it wrong. How do I know? Well, because their enthusiasm was fairly short-lived. You know, just five short days later on Friday, the only cry you hear, heard in Jerusalem was not Hosanna, but was what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Why? What happened? Where were these robe-spreading, palm-waving, hosanna-shouting Jesus fans on Friday? Well, the short answer is they were more interested in the kingdom than they were the king. They mistakenly believed that Jesus was nothing more than their political savior. They wanted freedom from their oppressors, economic prosperity. The Romans kicked out, and they merely embraced Jesus as a means to their own ends. But when Jesus turned out to be a different kind of king, they hung him out to dry. So when it comes to Jesus today, how do you answer that question? How do you answer the who is this? In other words, what version of Jesus do you believe in? What version of Jesus do you put your faith in? Do you believe in the consumeristic version that promises to make your life easier, your best life now? Or do you embrace the true version that calls you to a life of self-sacrifice amidst the pain? Your best life later. Are you like these Palm Sunday crowds approaching Jesus as merely the solver of your problems? Or do you approach him as the savior from your sins and the Lord of your life? Is your Hosanna the Hosanna of a consumer looking for a temporary fix or the Hosanna of a worshiper looking for an eternal king and Lord of your life? 
In short, are we following Jesus, my friends? Are we just using him? Now, a litmus test of this is to look at our prayers. What are we asking for? Are we asking for his kingdom to come when we pray, or are we asking for our will to be done? There's a difference. Yes, God wants to hear what's on our hearts. But prayer is about molding our hearts to be in tune with what God is doing in the world. It doesn't pull him to do our wishes and our bidding. It pulls us to do what he's already doing, already at work doing, so that we can participate in the grandeur and the wonder of his redemptive mission on earth. My friends, Jesus did not come to cater to our self-centered whims, but rather to serve our greatest need. Jesus came not to defeat Rome, but to conquer sin and death and Satan. Jesus came not to establish political rule, but to be crowned king of our lives. Jesus came not to bring economic prosperity, but to bring a spiritual wealth that no economic downturn can erase. Jesus came not to establish political rule. He came to save us. And yes, the Bible states that Jesus will come back. And Jesus will establish his kingdom on earth. And you better believe that on that day, he won't be riding a donkey. No, Revelation paints a much different picture. He's going to be coming on a white war horse with eyes like a flame of fire, with a crown on his head, blood on his robe, a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the armies of heaven will be behind him as he holds a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations in judgment. It's a terrifying scene. His first coming, at his first coming, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He came humbly on a colt of a donkey. Why? So that we could meet him as savior before we have to meet him as judge. So that he could save us instead of condemn us. So that he could die in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. So that when he does come back on that white war horse, we might meet him not as his enemies who are guilty, but as his friends who have been forgiven forever. Amen? As the worship team makes their way back to stage, we're going to fast forward to Thursday of that holy week. That night, Jesus gathered in the, up, in the upper room in, a, in a, uh, a house in Jerusalem somewhere with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal. And in that meal, he, he gave them a picture for what he was about to do for them the next day on Friday. He took two elements of the Passover meal and he reinterpreted them. He took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. You know, the disciples had to be pretty confused at that point. They'd never seen anybody lead the Passover meal that way. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I'm not going to share this with you until I come in my kingdom. But do this, drink this cup in remembrance of me. A symbol of my blood that's going to be shed for you. They didn't understand it then, but they would understand it in hindsight. 
And so now the church gathers often, regularly, to remember, just as Jesus asked his disciples to do, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood on our behalf, in our place, instead of us. So that when we put faith in what Jesus has done, our sins are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. He bore our burdens on the cross so that we could be forgiven forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you do, I invite you to come as the Diblers lead us in this, this closing song, or songs. To come, Ryan and I will be at these tables, gather around in groups of about 10. We'll take communion together. As soon as one group leaves, another group come in and fill in after them. This is a picture of Jesus' body broken, his blood shed for us on that Good Friday, the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So come as we sing.